to Jerusalem, to Judah, uh, after the edict of Cyrus uh, allowed them to do, to do that. Now, it is indeed a remnant that's returned, uh, a minority of the Jews who could have returned, returned, but nevertheless, there is a presence established once again there in Jerusalem. And eventually, the temple is rebuilt, and the walls of the city are restored, and the Jews are once more established in that land that God had given to them. But it is a different people than existed there before the exile, before God punished them with the destruction of their nation and exile in Babylon. And that is no more pointed, no more evident than in the place of worship. You may recall that when a place of worship was first built, under the direction of God, who had revealed himself as Yahweh, the one in covenant with his people when they first made a dwelling for him there in the wilderness. It was a tabernacle. It was a tent of meeting. It was a portable structure because uh, the people would be moving from place to place for a while. And, and God w- was identifying himself with them. He was, he was in a, a very literal sense, dwelling in their midst in that tabernacle. And perhaps you remember when that was finished there at the end of uh, Exodus 40, we're told all the construction is finished, the craftsmen are done with all their work, and it's furnished. We read there at the end of Exodus, then the cloud covered the tent, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And we're told that the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Maybe you remember sometime we began a series in Leviticus with that text, because Leviticus is all about how do you approach this holy God who has manifested himself in this incredible way, actually visual, physical way in, in the tabernacle that he had chosen for his presence, the presence of what is sometimes called the Shekinah cloud of glory. Or maybe you could jump forward to the construction of the temple, a more permanent structure there in Jerusalem that God ordained for his people to construct. And perhaps you recall that Solomon completed that work, making a magnificent building for worship there. And so we're told in Second Chronicles 5, all the work that Solomon did for the house of Yahweh was finished, and Solomon brought, to the th- brought in the things that David his father dedicated So they bring everything to the temple, they furnish it, and we're told when the priests came out of the holy place, there is a song of praise raised, and the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise of Yahweh. The house, the house of Yahweh was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of Yahweh filled the house of God. Again, a physical manifestation of the presence of God 
with his people in an awe-inspiring display. Sadly, the people did not respect the presence of God. They were unfaithful to their covenant God, Yahweh. And in a very moving vision, the prophet Ezekiel, years later, sees the glory of Yahweh, that Shekinah glory cloud. He sees it come up out of the temple and leave the temple and the city going east. That cloud never came back. Haggai has promised, we saw last, last Sunday, has promised that the temple that the people are rebuilding there will be glorious. Remember, he says, well, Yahweh speaking through him says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Yahweh of hosts. In fact, he goes on to say, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says Yahweh of hosts. Well, the Jews finished the reconstruction, but we have no record of the glory cloud returning to that second temple. Isaiah prophesied a coming of the Lord, coming again, as it were. We looked at that passage as well. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. Was Jerusalem, herald of good news, lifted up? That is your voice, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord Yahweh comes with might and his, arm, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. But still, by the time we come to our text today, under the prophet Malachi, you've already noticed as the last of the prophets in the, in the Old Testament appropriately placed there because of the chronology but still, there's been no visible sign of Yahweh's return to the temple. Life for those returned Jews, that remnant of Jews, has settled into an everyday routine. Most of the population, if you look at the way they live, they don't really seem that different from the people, Gentiles around them. Becoming clear that the good old days when the nation was prosperous and united in the worship of Yahweh, like that time back there when the tabernacle was completed or that incredible dedication service under Solomon, that's not going to happen. It's not coming back. It's true that the exiles seemed to have cured the Jews of the idolatry that was common before where the nation was destroyed, but their worship really still seems more ritual than reality. They're going through the motions. Their daily lives are routine, largely devoid of purpose and goal. 
that's the setting for Malachi's prophecy. So if you have a chance to go back and read the uh, first two chapters of Malachi, or read the book as a whole, it's a very short one, you'll notice that, that he sets up this adversarial dialogue. Okay, he's sort of having this conversation with the people, in a sense, through his prophecy, confronting them with what they might not be saying outwardly, but they're thinking in their minds. And I think that's what's happening in our text here. They may not have given voice often to these thoughts, but they're certainly there in their hearts. And so Malachi says, you've wearied Yahweh with your words, that is, with your thoughts. He is tired of you. I'm sure you as a parent have never said that to your kids. I'm tired of hearing that. <laughs> That's sort of what God's saying here, right? I am tired of hearing it. What is it that they're saying that so irritates him, so tires him, so frustrates him. Well, evidently, they're looking at their circumstances. They're looking around at life as they experience it, and they're saying, where's God? You know, they're looking around, and they're seeing some people that seem really devoid of any morality to be admired, and their lives seem to be going pretty well. In fact, they seem to be prospering. They, they look at the, the elite of their day. They seem to be thumbing their nose at God. And they just get richer and richer of all the comforts of life while you're slaving away from day to day. And they say, well, what does this mean? And there's some sarcasm here, of course, isn't there? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them. Well, obviously he does, because they're, they're fat, rich, and happy. And to express the same idea in slightly different terms, you're saying, where is the God of justice? You ever look at the world around you and find yourself tempted to ask that question? You look at some of the terrible things happening in our world. Seems so unjust, so cruel. Ever tempted to say, Where is the God of justice? Where in this world is there justice? Or perhaps you're, you're like the people and seeing the prosperity of the wicked and wondering about that. You're not alone in that. I mean, don't, don't deny it. Don't, don't try to cover it up. God's people face that. Habakkuk begins his prophecy with the question, Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? 
goes on to say, the wicked surround the justice. Justice goes forth perverted. Jeremiah, that great prophet, says, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Speaking to God, he says, you plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You seem to be giving them all that they've got. But you are near in their mouth. They talk about you far from their hearts. Or we could go to Job, you know, that classic book dealing with that question. The tents of robbers are at peace, Job says. Those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. These idol worshipers carrying around their gods, they have no problems like me. The psalmist, Psalm 73, I'd really commend this for your reading later on. Psalm 73 has the lines, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I, I had almost fallen in my walk before God. I, I'd, almost, I'd almost stumbled badly. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And that's, uh, that's really hitting close to home, isn't it? Because perhaps they're complaining and wanting some sign of justice, some sign of retribution is really because we're envious of those people. How come I'm not prospering? And those wicked people, much more bad than me, are doing well. Well, that's the attitude of the people here that Malachi is uncovering, revealing. And here's God's answer in chapter 3. Okay, what does God say when people make that accusation, which seems in some human senses to be rather justified? Behold, he says, and uh, literally, he says, behold me. <laughs> it's a turn of phrase we can't say in English without it say, sounding sort of awkward. But, but it clearly calls attention to himself. He, he's saying, look here. Okay? I got something to say. Look right here. Behold. And you'll notice, by the way, to anticipate, uh, there at the end of uh, verse 1, he uses that word behold again. And any time you see that word, and I, I like that Translation. Some translations use look or see, but it, the behold still has a sort of a punch to it that I, I like to have. And so, so this, what he's saying here is bracketed by this call to attention. So you, you really need to listen up. You really need to look carefully at what he says here. Behold, I, I send my messenger. So the response of God to this complaint is, I am sending someone. Literally, there's a play on words here which we miss because the name Malachi means my messenger. 
And so it's almost as if God is saying, behold, I am sending Malachi. But, of course, we know that we're not having here Malachi prophesy the sending of Malachi. So we're probably to understand this more generally in that sense of my messenger. And, of course, in that sense, we can, we can say that all the prophets of God were his messengers. So he's sending a messenger, but it's a particular messenger. That seems implied by the text, right? Because it uses the singular here. God does talk about sending multiple of his servants as messengers, but here one in particular seems to be in view. And, and before we go on, we, we want to notice also that this word messenger is often translated in your Bibles as angel. The angel literally means messenger, but oftentimes English translations will use the word angel because they want you to understand that this particular messenger is not a human being, is a heavenly being. I, I sort of wish that, that they just translated it messenger anyway, partly because we have so many foolish ideas about angels, about heavenly beings, and it's hard to read that term angel without having some of the silly stuff that our culture says about angels in your mind. And the point, of course, is that these are messengers from God. That, that's what makes them significant. And think, so anytime you see angel, always think messenger, messenger from God. They're about his purposes. They're doing his will. So that's the term here, messenger. God sends messengers often human messengers. Most of the time this word is translated. Uh, it's referring to a human messenger, but he sends heavenly messengers as well. So I'll send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And of course, that's very, very reminiscent of that passage in Isaiah 40 that we read, right, where it speaks of a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. A messenger comes speaking a message. And so we're not surprised to, to see this emphasized. Okay, God's sending a message in response to this criticism from, from the Jews here. Now, you're probably ahead of me in knowing that Jesus applies this text specifically to one particular messenger. Matthew chapter 11, we're told Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. John, often called John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And he specifically says, this is he of whom it is written. And he quotes now from the Greek version of the Old Testament. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So we can say there's a specific interpretation we're justified in making here of this passage being to John the Baptist, and that's probably why uh, Handel, or Jennings, I should say, uh, put this text in the Oratorio Messiah, which was about Jesus. Now, I want to pause there a moment to say, while we affirm that specific application following Jesus' guidance here, we should 
we should also see a broader application here of the idea that God sends a messenger to prepare people for his coming. Isn't that what he's doing even now through his word? God is coming for every human being, either in the end of their life and death or at the end of all earthly history. And so you are called to live every day preparing for that moment when he comes for you. So don't lose that personal application here. Well, let's go on because we have another use of messenger coming up, but there's a shift in the subject. Okay, I will send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me, but he doesn't go on to describe that messenger in more detail. Rather, look about at the second sentence in, in verse 1. And the Lord, and, and by the way, this, this is not the name Yahweh. The King James uses all capitals here, but that's really a mistranslation. This is the name Lord in regular print that, that means master. Okay, the... the uh, this is the term used in a household of the head of the household. He is the lord of the household, or it's used in the context of a kingdom as the head of the kingdom, who is the king, of course. So that name is being used here, the Lord, to emphasize that God is ultimate ruler. So that's who's being described now. So the messenger is going to come to prepare the way, but he's preparing the way not for himself. He's, he's not the, the focus of attention. It's the Lord, the one who rules. And there's a little bit of a note of irony here, I think. We saw sarcasm in the words of the people. I think we see some irony, perhaps even sarcasm, here in the words of the Lord, because he says, the Lord whom you seek. And notice that that's parallel to in whom you delight, used as the messenger. Now, we think for just a few minutes, these, these people are not seeking God with their whole hearts. You read the first chapters of Malachi, and they're really disrespectful and disdaining of God's worship even. They're not seeking him. And they're certainly not delighting in him, so there may be a a subtle irony here, a sarcasm. You say that you're seeking the Lord. You say that you delight in the covenant. And the Lord is coming as the messenger of the covenant, as the enforcer of the covenant, as the one whom you have rebelled against, your covenant Lord. You say that you delight in him. You say that you're seeking him, but you're not ready for him. You don't know what you're asking for. But he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. So the focus of our text is what happens when the Lord shows up. What happens when, when this Lord whom they say they're seeking actually comes? Now, that passage in John that I read where Jesus interprets this passage as referring to John the Baptist, he's the messenger who's set first. What we sometimes don't notice is that not only is Jesus identifying who John is there, he's identifying who he is. 
Because if John is the one preparing the way, then Jesus is the Lord who comes. Jesus is the sovereign ruler. Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. Jesus is Yahweh in human form. And what happens when Jesus suddenly comes to his temple? I think the word suddenly there is to, to give us the idea where they're not ready. Okay. If you're prepared for something, it doesn't come on you suddenly. They're not prepared, and so this comes on them. What happens when Jesus shows up suddenly in his temple? John chapter 2. Passover, the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. What happened when Jesus came to his temple? He found it polluted. And it's not the animals and birds that polluted it. It's not the money that was being offered as tithes and offerings that polluted it. No, it's the sinful hearts and behaviors of the people who claim to be serving God. And this reflects the condition in Malachi's day as well. You can read for yourself in the first two chapters how not only the people, but the priests themselves had polluted the temple with their disdain for God's worship, their unfaithfulness to his law, seen in the mistreatment even of their own wives. When Yahweh comes to his temple, the people are not ready. Well, what's he going to do when he gets there? And this is the really important part that I hope you get. When the Lord comes, there are two things that he does. And we see those in verse 2 and following. It's implied first by question. Who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? This God whom you say that you're looking for. What human being can stand in his presence? The imagery there, of course, is standing before his judgment throne. Who can endure the day of his coming? Because he's going to do these two things. First, he is going to refine his people. For he is a, like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. God will purify his people. Specifically, the focus here is on the sons of Levi the priestly class who has been violating God's law right and left 
for Malachi, but I think in view here is the people as a whole. When the Lord comes to his people, he has to refine them. They are not ready in and of themselves for his coming. They cannot stand in his presence. And so he refines them. His goal, you see there in verse 4, well, the end of verse 3 and verse 4, that they will bring offerings in righteousness to Yahweh. That's the problem that he opened with in Malachi. Their offerings were not righteous offerings. They actually were repellent to God because their hearts weren't right. And his goal is that they offer him righteous offerings. Then the offering, verse 4, of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to Yahweh as in the days of old and as in former years. He comes as a refiner of his people. The message of the gospel is not, I'm okay, you're okay. Those whom he saves, the Lord calls to holiness. And an important means by which the Spirit in you acts is the awful, painful process of refining. God purposes that his people be made righteous. And the Holy Spirit's refining work includes times of affliction by which you are enabled to crucify your own sinful inclinations. Isaiah chapter 4. He who is left in Zion, he remains in Jerusalem, will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. It says later in the book, in chapter 48, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. And he emphasizes why he does this. For my own sake, for my own sake, the Lord says, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. In a passage that the New Testament sees fulfilled in Jesus, Zechariah describes this refining process. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones in the whole land, declares Yahweh. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, but one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. See, that's the result of the refining. I will say they are my people. And they will say, Yahweh is my God. Human beings created in the image of God are made for worship. It is in drawing near to him and reflecting his glory that you will receive, you will discover true meaning and joy. But this is not something that happens only when you worship in a service like this or when you meditate on scripture and pray. Remember that the word worship in the Bible also means serve. So if you're a child of God, you are to consider all of your life 
to be devoted to his worship and service. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 12, a passage you've heard before. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice. See the worship analogy there. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Apostle Paul here is describing that process of refining that happens for every member of the church, the body of Christ that he's redeemed, purchased by his blood. So if that includes you, then that says that you're called to a life of repentance, that trust in the Lord's purifying work in you. The prayer of David in Psalm 51 becomes your prayer. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You're called to be a child of God. If you've been united with Christ by repenting of your sin, Placing your faith in him alone, God calls you to refinement. He's refining you. Now, that's a painful process, but verse 5 tells us it's much preferable to the alternative. Because what's the alternative? What's the other thing that God does when he comes? He either refines his people or, verse 5, he judges the wicked. He's going to be for you one or the other, a refiner or a judge. And so he says there in verse 5, I will be a swift witness. You could read that expert witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless. Notice how many of these have to do with relationships between people. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. God comes to judge. The alternative to refining is retribution. Those who will not be purified will be punished. The terms describing those whom God, Yahweh will judge are all verbal participles in that verse, by the way, which implies ongoing attitudes and actions. They just are persisting in this way of life, disregarding his law. Now, judgment is good news for those who love justice, right? Even for sinners who have repented and sought refuge in the God of justice, but judgment is terror for those who refuse to repent and persist as enemies of God. And so that's why you see God's people rejoicing in the prospect of his judgment. 
good example is Psalm 98, which is the basis for joy to the world that we sang earlier. Psalm 98 includes these words, Make a joyful noise to Yahweh, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of horn. Make a joyful noise before the King Yahweh. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. And what is it that is calling forth this exuberant worship that involves not only all the human race, but all of creation? Before Yahweh, before, before he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. God comes as either judge or refiner. Human beings naturally value and appreciate beautiful objects of gold and silver. I think that's why Malachi is inspired to use that imagery here. We consider the work of mining and refining these metals as worth it for the beautiful works of art that skilled craftsmen produce. But all of those beautiful things will one day perish. Their beauty is only temporary. But the earthly world in all of human history is the workplace of the master craftsman who is making objects of beauty and purpose for eternity. But his material is not dead, inert matter, but living flesh. And his goal is not some passing prettiness, but an enduring glory. Because God is creating for himself sons and daughters who will reflect his image in holiness, and who will share in his endless, ever-increasing joy. That's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? When the Spirit of God creates spiritual life in you, one who is dead in your sins without him, he awakens in you a love for righteousness and appreciation for the beauty of holiness. And so God sovereignly begins in you a refining and purifying process whereby you daily die to sin and its ugliness and you daily grow in godliness and its beauty. Uh, dying to sin is a painful process because of your own sinful tendencies, but it is not worth comparing to the glory of godliness, the God's working in you. Remember that when you, as a follower of Christ, endure hardship that comes in a world corrupted by sin, when you suffer the painful consequences of your own disobedience to God's law, you are not being judged for your sin. If you're a child of God, you suffer hardship, even the painful consequences of your own disobedience to God's law, you are not being judged for your sin. One reason I can say that is that your earthly suffering does absolutely nothing to make atonement for your sin. Your sin deserves nothing less than eternal hell. 
And in particular, it is a lie and utter foolishness to think that you can somehow inflict suffering on yourself by penance to God to make payment for your sin. In fact, a person who engages in that kind of behavior is actually sinning more by abusing the body God has given them. Let me underscore it again. No one who has been united with Christ in repentance and faith suffers judgment for their sin. How can I say that? Because your judgment fell on Christ. And you cannot add one bit to that. The price has been paid in full. To even think that you could add somehow to what Christ has done for you is an insult to Christ, isn't it? He paid it all. So your suffering is not judgment for your sin. It's a part of that refining process that, I, that we've been looking at here. And I, I want you to grab a hold of that. I think it's that knowledge of that refining process that enables Paul to say this in Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to close with this. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's that refining process, see? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, to be trying to make up for your sin in some, some way. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Your suffering is not to make payment for your sin. Christ has done that. But your suffering becomes a way in which you experience life with Christ and in Christ and him in you. As he does that purification process in you through your suffering. And so Paul can say this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what that refining is about. Your part is to pursue that. To, to ask God to help you to see your suffering in a different way than the world sees suffering. To see it not as punishment for your sin, but as a part of that refining process whereby God is transforming you into something so beautiful, something so wondrous, something so holy, that if we could see it now, 
we would be, as C.S. Lewis says, tempted to fall down and worship. God is about sanctifying you. And that is such a wonderful privilege, isn't it? Yes, it's hard work. Being refined isn't pleasant. It's hard work to pursue godliness. But it's something God is doing in you for his glory and for your good. Let's pray together. Only Father, it is our desire that these things be reality to us. So help us, Lord, to humble ourselves before you. Even as we uh, observe the sacrament of communion together, help us to be reminded of that purifying work that you do that is such a wonderful gift from your Holy Spirit. Help us to cooperate with that and to seek your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.